Welcome to the Self-Improvement Book Club with Rachel. Today's book is Not Drinking Tonight, A Guide to Creating a Sober Life You Love by Amanda White, who is a therapist. This book was something I picked up because I did dry January this year, which is where you go a month without drinking and that was inspired by the book Dopamine Nation, which I review on this podcast uh, with my coworker Allie Lyons. And she and I read the book, and it was wonderful. It really opened my eyes to how we are a society of pleasure seekers and how we need to balance the pain and the pleasure side of things. So that book inspired me to stop drinking for January. And this book really was an excellent read. I would highly, highly recommend it. It not only talks about reevaluating your relationship with alcohol, but it gives some really great tools for anybody, anybody that wants to make their life better and look into why they do certain things or how to set healthy boundaries or any of that is really in this book and it's it's so good. It's just so good. I read it and I loved it. So I wanted to review it. Part one, why do you drink? So this is about reevaluating your relationship with alcohol. And there's some really important questions she asks. Which one of them is just simply would your life be better without alcohol? And the author tells a little bit about her own story with quitting, that moderation wasn't working for her, and alcohol was actually making her life worse. Did she drink every day? No. Uh, Did she have a terrible, embarrassing thing happen to her every time she drank? No. So it wasn't like your typical, she was drinking every day or doing things like blacking out and doing things she regretted. But it was more that moderation wasn't working for her. And she felt like if she was to become a therapist later in life that she couldn't drink in the way that she was drinking because it was more harmful than it was helpful. So she really makes it relatable. And she tells stories of different clients she's had that wanted to give up alcohol and how they did that. So important questions to ask yourself in order to get clear on how alcohol plays a role in your life and your relationship with alcohol. So if you want to grab a pen and a paper and write these down, go ahead. What role does alcohol serve in your life? How has it solved problems for you? For example, does it soothe my feelings when I'm feeling awkward at social events? Does it help me relax at the end of the day? Does it make dating or sex easier? Does it soothe my loneliness? What situations, events, or activities feel easier with a drink in my hand? How has drinking negatively impacted my relationships with my friends, family, or community? How does drinking negatively impact my mental health? Do I get flashbacks or have trauma resurface when I'm drinking? What is it like to wake up the night of drinking? What emotions do I feel?
How often do I do things when I drink that I regret the next day? And do I ever make promises to myself that I will never drink again and that I will drink less? And how long do these promises last? Do I drink alone? Do I use alcohol to deal with my emotions? How does alcohol affect my sleep? And do I have a history of disordered eating? So just a few questions to ask yourself. One of my favorite chapters in the book is chapter four, The Culture of Shame, where she talks about the shame cycle, which can look like this when it comes to drinking. You drink, you may do something you regret or something that makes you feel shameful and therefore you promise yourself, I'm never going to drink again. This is not worth it. But then you drink again and do something else that you're regretting. And it just kind of cycles around and around like that. That really hit home to me. And I could understand that shame cycle, not just with drinking, but with other things that we do repetitively to ourselves where we shame ourselves or feel bad about things and then we just do it again. She talks in the book about teaching her clients the difference between the emotions guilt, shame, embarrassment, and humiliation which are all cousins in the emotion family. So guilt is the feeling of unease or remorse after you've done something wrong especially towards another person. We feel guilty when our behavior does not align with our values or morals. However, shame is larger. It's something we define as who we are. We're shameful people. We're not good enough. Or we may struggle with low self-worth and think poorly about ourselves. And almost every mistake we make can be a source of shame rather than guilt. Because shame is more about who we are, not something we did wrong. Therefore, guilt is more healthy and helpful because it propels us to take responsibility for our mistakes, apologize, change our behavior, change our future. Shame, on the other hand, keeps us stuck because we think we are bad people, not good enough, that it defines who we are. And this point... In the book, I just thought everyone needs to hear. And I'm going to say it one more way that she labels it in the book. Shame leads us to question our own character and worth as a human being, while guilt has us questioning our behavior. So shame robs us of the ability of change, essentially, because we get stuck in the belief, this is just who I am. And that, my friends, is a limiting belief. So what about humiliation and embarrassment? Because they can often be easily confused. Embarrassment is the feeling of being nervous or self-conscious about what people think of you, which I think we can all relate to because we are, again, humans and we care to some degree what people think of us. On the other hand, humiliation is a state of being in a painful loss of pride, self-respect, or dignity. So it's often associated with being called out publicly or labeled a certain name based on your behavior by someone else. 
So the author points out how shame is unhelpful in healing and changing drinking habits. But some people may think, well, you have to shame people for society to function or they'll all just be lawless and do whatever they want, right? Because after all, doesn't fear of being shamed make people want to follow the rules and laws and behave acceptably in society? Well, if you want to cite Benet Brown's work, she finds the opposite is true. Shame is actually highly correlated with addiction, violence, and aggression. All not good things for society. The author also suggests that there is a connection between shame and trauma. Shame and trauma are linked because in trauma, we feel powerless to stop what's happening to us. And shame is the feeling that arises that tells us I'm a bad person and it's my fault this has happened. So they are linked because deep down many traumatized people are haunted by shame they feel about themselves and what they did or didn't do under certain circumstances. And this is linked to alcohol because oftentimes using substance like alcohol can be a band-aid or cover-up for the way where you are feeling in that shame cycle, or it is something we use to cope with trauma. And although she talks about alcohol in this book as a concept, we can also interchange this with other methods of numbing and coping, such as drugs, dieting, eating disorders, perfectionism, excessive exercise, shopping, addictive relationships, gambling, or just being really busy all the time. Like alcohol, these things numb us out to stop the shame, pain, and trauma. So in the book, it addresses the cycle of self-sabotaging. And until we're able to find an environment that is safe and we're able to cultivate safety in our bodies, healing is not possible. We do this by attempting to control our environment. And this can manifest in a number of different ways by being hypervigilant, constantly scanning the environment for our abuser or not leaving our house during certain times. And the avoidance cycle can start altogether. Another way we can accomplish this is by using alcohol or addictive behaviors to control emotions and numb out. So essentially by trying to shut everything off, it's only making the cycle worse. So that's why she suggests coming off alcohol for 30 days or more to see what's going on. So just to recap the cycle of shame or self-sabotage, it starts by making a mistake, engaging in an unhealthy behavior like drinking, comparing ourselves to society's high ideals, anything in that realm. Then it cycles around to feeling shame, beating yourself up. There's something wrong with me. Those kind of things you hear in your head. Then you go to, okay, I'm going to resolve to change. I'm going to be perfect, or I'm going to get that body I want, or I'm going to totally stop drinking. So you set maybe some unrealistic goals for yourself that then you become overwhelmed, act out, self-numb in order to cope with the shame that you couldn't make those big changes. And then the cycle repeats again. 
So obviously to get out of this cycle, it definitely helps to set more realistic goals, like a small amount of time abstaining from alcohol and see if that helps. And if you make a mistake, forgive yourself quickly and move on. In the book, she also talks about how alcohol affects your mental health. And new studies show that no amount of alcohol is safe for your brain. In fact, over 25,000 participants in a research study found that alcohol can create up to 0.8% of reduction in gray matter over time. And this gray matter in your brain is critical for memory, muscle control, emotional regulation, sensory perception. So all this good stuff you want, alcohol is chipping away at those things. Alcohol also affects our sleep. We don't sleep as well, and therefore you don't get as rested and recover in the way that you need to the next day. The author says the negative impacts of alcohol just are not talked about enough. So one thing she suggests is you write down your costs and payoffs for continuing to drinking. So what is drinking costing you? And what are you getting as a benefit from drinking? And to write all those down and get a clearer picture for what is really benefiting you from drinking. In the second part of the book, the author gives you tools you need to heal your relationship with alcohol. And she is not judgy in this book. I would like to say that she says everyone should make their own choice, that totally abstaining from alcohol is not a perfect fit for everyone. Some people can drink in healthy moderation, but she just really encourages you to look at your own particular situation and decide for yourself. One tool she talks about in the book is reparenting yourself. Reparenting yourself is giving yourself what you need that maybe your parents didn't give you or that you just need currently. And yes, reparenting has become quite a buzzword. What it means is it's used by psychologists in reference to individuals that had childhood trauma, lack some security of attachment to parental figures, and what the therapist wants to do with them is their own inner child work to act as their own parent figure for any issues that come up. And as they go through that, they ask, how would a loving parent respond to this right now? And they would respond to themselves in that loving way. With her clients, she would teach them four tools for reparenting, mindfulness, emotional regulation, self-care, and boundaries. The author says that self-care involves understanding and meeting your needs rather than bubble baths, facials, or any other kind of typical self-care. It's balancing accountability with radical self-compassion so you can develop your highest self. So this may mean going to the dentist when you don't want to because it's the best thing for your health. But she has a lot of great tips in the book for mindfulness and self-care that are wonderful. One of my favorite quotes she put in this book is about emotions. She says, feelings are like children. You don't want them to drive the car, but you don't want to stuff them in the trunk either. And I just, I love that quote. It helps to think about how you really want to process your emotion 
And she gives a great acronym called NAILER for how do you process your emotions. And NAILER stands for in, notice them, right? They're there. Hey, emotion. A equals allow. So allow them to come up. I is for investigate. Investigate what's going on. Get curious about the emotion you may be feeling. L is for label. So, hey, I'm feeling guilt or shame or whatever is coming up. E is for explore. What things could you do in order to work through that emotion and take action to then R, release it. I love the acronym and I thought it was really useful in how to process your emotions and get better at emotional regulation. Other tips she gives for ways to increase mindfulness about your emotions or where you're at is practice meditation, getting massages, acupuncture, other body work, engage in self-massage or self-touch, engage in movement that has a mindful component like yoga, practice mindful eating, or notice sensations like hunger, fullness, and satisfaction. Another great point she makes in the book about emotions that I took away was emotions versus meta-emotions. So emotions are the first thing we feel. Like we may feel angry at our partner, but we don't like that we feel angry. So we have a meta-emotion. That is an emotion you have about your first emotion. So if you feel guilty that you're feeling angry, then you're just adding this layer of meta emotion on top of it. So you're judging how you actually feel and that judgment invokes another emotion. And ironically, the judgment of our emotion often leads to an experience called the meta emotion. So if we don't judge ourselves in the first place, we can avoid this. And that's where accepting our emotions is a really good thing. Here are some examples of things you can ask yourself instead of judging. Why may I be feeling this way? Why now? What just happened and what could have triggered this emotion? What was I doing before this happened? Do I have any memory connected to this experience? Or have I met my basic needs? Am I hungry, thirsty, tired? How long have I been outside today? All those are great questions to ask. The author's chapter on boundaries was also really refreshing because it's really important to discover our boundaries and what style we have. She names three styles, which are rigid, healthy, and porous. Rigid boundaries are very strict. You don't, you don't bend very easily. You know, this is this is how it's going to be. You're going to do this, this, and this for me, which could come off as demands in a relationship. Or healthy boundaries are somewhat flexible. You're willing to communicate and talk about it. They're more requests of other people asking for something. And porous boundaries are very open. Like you're able to switch your boundaries quickly and maybe they aren't as tight as they should be. Porous boundaries often have us saying yes when we really want to say no. Rigid boundaries may look like this, avoiding close relationships, avoiding vulnerability, 
cutting people off or ghosting them at the first sight of conflict, being unable to ask for help, having extremely high expectations of others, struggling trusting people, or keeping others at a distance to avoid rejection. And the opposite porous boundaries is you often feel guilty and responsible for how other people feel. You feel resentful to others, especially when they ask for what they need. You sometimes expect people to read your mind or know what you want. You struggle to voice your opinion. You feel like people continuously break their word with you. And you become passive aggressive when you're frustrated. And healthy boundaries, which we all strive for, is being able to say no, respecting others when they say no. Being able to maintain your own sense of self while listening to other people's perspective. Being honest and clear about your communication with others and not compromising your own values for other people. Being able to shift your boundaries and compromise depending on the situation and person. She eventually ties these boundaries into drinking and saying that If you want to stop drinking, you may need these boundaries at home, which is not keeping alcohol in your house, not going to bars or restaurants where you used to get drunk, not spending time with, quote, drinking buddies, taking a different route home that you used to if you pass a bar or something that you might be tempted to go into, setting limits with how much time you spend with certain family members if they are a trigger to you. Not watching certain shows or movies that you did when you were drinking. And taking a break from social media if you see people on there that are having fun drinking or they look like they're having fun. Finally, in the last part of the book, she talks about how to make it stick to stay away from alcohol. And how to build a life you don't need to escape from. And the big message here is to take one day at a time. There's only one way to eat an elephant, a bite at a time, right? She also dives into when people start to abstain from alcohol, they may take on another addictive behavior like excessive exercise or dieting. So she really dives into the diet culture and some facts about quitting drinking and how it can affect your hunger. It's some really, really great information. She also addresses socializing while sober and some of the challenges that can go along with that and how to address it. So if you've ever thought, hey, maybe I should take a break from alcohol, you should pick up this book. It has not only great advice about stopping drinking, but just great advice in general for your life and how to make it a life that you love And again, don't want to escape from. So I hope you've loved this episode of the Self-Improvement Book Club with Rachel. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Bye for now.